0: You're listening to the Leaf Report with Canadian press national hockey writer Jonas Siegel and the athletic TO's James Myrtle. Hi James. Are you ready to go? I like your Pittsburgh Pirates hat. I'll we'll start there. You wanna talk some pirates?
1: It's from my bachelor party, we went to Pittsburgh. We went to pirate we went to pirates games, it was like 38 degrees. It was it was fun. It was too much fun. You become a bit of a baseball fan, which I appreciate, Uh,
0: but we're here to talk hot. Well, you're you're saying no, but I think you've, I think you've jumped on the Jays bandwagon a little bit. Let's talk Leafs though. That's the point of this podcast. Um, So you asked me to come up with some of the bigger moments of 2016. I believe you're putting together a piece of 10 for 2016 at The Athletic. Uh, So I'll give you a couple that came to mind for me. Or do you want to do, I'll do one, you do one, and then go from there? Or how do you want to do it?
1: Okay, so I had to put together a top 10. I didn't have to. I assigned myself to put together a top 10, things that happened in the calendar year of 2016 to the Leafs. I think the first two are kind of obvious. I think we call it the most memorable moments, or those were the, the moments that stand out. Um, I think the first two are pretty obvious. Maybe, I won't even ask you to guess, and I'm sure people can. Winning the lottery number one, and the four-goal game was number two, but I'd be curious what you think the the other eight should be. Okay, so I had
0: the lottery and the four-goal game, Um, but the lottery was more interesting to me because I was there. Like, I was literally in the room and found out an hour before it became public, and it was just like this crazy experience. They invited me to kind of be the media person in there, and so... When I see it happen, like you're, you're starting to run through your mind, okay, wow, like they actually just got the first pick for the first time in X amount of years. Austin Matthews is going to be a Leaf. Like It was weird to actually experience it in person and kind of see how the lottery actually works. Um, I don't know. What, what do you remember about that night, like watching
1: it? So my assignment that night was to find the craziest Leafs fans I could and hang out with them and like watch... I think, I think that at the Globe, they thought that I'd be writing about like their disappointment and how like it continues and whatever. And the least put this whole year into, because there was an 80% chance they weren't going to get that number one pick, but then it went the other way and they got it. I was actually, I was at a fan party. I don't know if it was run by the Sox guys or not, but they were there. There was a whole bunch of bloggers there. There were people that had come in from out of town that had taken a Greyhound bus from far away and. It was like the craziest fans. There were fans. There was a fan that had a, a Babcock tattoo. Like these were like the m- most insane Leafs fans you ever meet. And being in the room with them, the energy was really crazy. And when they started counting down, and and it, they kept going further and further, they were just going insane. It was it was interesting. It was that was some of the probably the most excited I've seen Leafs fans. Other than that, maybe that 2013 playoff series. But it was it was up there I mean they they really got behind it it was that's why it, I mean to me like you' you're you were there you saw it you saw the way the organization reacted. I know from people who were there they told me that Shanahan was basically over the moon and like they were so excited that that they won. no see the way it works is uh, or at least the way it worked
0: when I was in there is there was only one official from each of the teams in the lottery so representing the Leafs wasn't Shanahan it was Steve Keogh, who's in charge of their media relations so he wouldn't have found out until after like like everyone else I think he would have found out on the stage like while they're doing that TV broadcast but the the, the interesting part for me was like when they did all the numbers everyone like had these little booklets basically of all the different possible combinations and who could win so right after they announced all the numbers everyone is just like scurrying to that little packet to try to find what the right one is. And I remember doing it and I'm like, whoa, like the Leafs actually won the lottery. And it's just like when you think of the context of like how much that changes everything, like you can't even, I don't know, you you can't undersell how big of a moment that is in Leafs history. It could be one of, but probably already is like one of the bigger moments in Leafs history because it changes everything. Like if you get, I don't know, if instead of getting the first pick, you get the third pick or the fifth pick. You're going to you're getting a good player, but you might not be getting like a foundational player. Obviously Lion A might be that.
1: The lowest they could have fallen was to 4th. So, they weren't getting the fifth they weren't getting the fifth pick, but anyway, carry on.
0: Okay, so the four goal game I watched with you um and we were kind of just like probably everyone else watching it like thinking how could this possibly happen? Um now that you had some time to kind of digest it, I don't know. What, what do you think about that game that night? Like it, we thought when he got the first one, okay, this is good story. Scores in his NHL debut, and then he gets another one, and then I remember saying to you, I think he's going to get a hat trick, and then he gets the hat trick, and then you're just like, oh my god, four! Like, what do you what do you remember about that?
1: I remember you and I were sitting at a pub because we weren't there (laughs) feeling like we should have probably decided to go on that trip and be at that game because it's, I think that's another one of those moments that we'll be talking about a long time from now. And especially if Matthew's trajectory continues straight up and he he ends up being one of the better players in franchise history, it's going to be, that game's going to be something that we talk about for a long, long time. I'm, I'm curious what you think the other big moments of the season were.
0: Well, I also had um, the night. I think it was February twenty ninth, or was it the date? No, maybe it was March first, because it would have been just after the trade deadline when they bring up all the rookies. Like they bring up Nealander, Kapanen, Brown, uh, Soshnikov. Just that that whole night they played Tampa, and you had like kind of that first wave of what the Leafs like sort of might look like down the line. I just thought that was, like, a really interesting point. And then, obviously, we saw Neilander specifically look like a, a really good potential NHL player. You know, Connor Brown came up. I think he had six points in seven games or something like that. Uh, so I thought that was, like, a pretty significant moment for the team just because it was kind of like the fog of that 30th-place season was sort of being lifted, and that was kind of the turning point. What did you think?
1: Yeah, that's a great one. Yeah. I asked it on my Facebook page for people to to post uh, what they thought, and some people actually said that. I didn't include that. I actually had on my list the day that the Leafs finished dead last, when they clinched dead last. It was in that game in New Jersey when they lost. It went right down to their last game of the season before they actually clinched last place because Edmonton was only one point ahead of them at that point. That was one. And the other one, in, maybe your moment is better, but I had when the Marlies clinched first in the AHL because it was kind of the culmination of all their young guys in the great season that they had there. And they finished 12 points ahead of uh, the second-place team in the AHL. And that was driven by all those guys. But that that Tampa game, it was funny. It was almost how much better the Leafs looked. You know, They, they got rid of a bunch of old guys who were past their prime. I mean, the other big moments... Uh, trading Phaneuf was a big one. Trading James Reimer was a big one. Um, signing the Riley and Kadri contracts. I don't know if I can remember all of, all 10 of the, I, I thought breaking and Zaitsev was one that I had near the end of the list. Uh, the, the, the game where they, um, they, they honored all of the, the, the home opener where they honored all of the players and Dave Keon was there and talked to the crowd and all that. I thought that was, that was a good moment in the, in 2016.
0: Well, let's hit on a couple of those. Uh, I think the FNUF one we should talk about because that one is really fascinating, especially you, you look at Dion FNUF this year in Ottawa. hasn't been great. Um, the contract obviously isn't great. <laughs> you're, you're shaking your head. Um, so when you contrast that kind of with the way that the Kessel trade now looks in hindsight, they obviously didn't get much back in return for Kessel. He's now a top 10 scorer. I don't... Like, I'm not totally blown away by that. I don't know how long this continues or anything like that, but the FNF trade is really interesting because the, I think they got rid of him at the perfect moment because, I don't know, he was only going to get worse with age and the contract is only going to look worse and worse and worse and they didn't retain anything. Um, how much of a coup do you think that trade ends up being for them in kind of the rebuilding
1: thing? I think it's so massive that they don't have any baggage left over from that. I mean, they had to take on those bad contracts, but they're all going to be gone. They're all going to be gone at the end of this year, right? I mean, there's not really any damage done by bringing in Cowan and Mahalak and uh, Greening, Colin Greening. Yeah, uh, brain cramp there. I mean, so they got Tobias Lindbergh. I was going to call him Lindstrom. Lindbergh. Who doesn't? Who hasn't really done distinguished himself with the Marley? It doesn't really look like he's going to be an NHL player. But they got a second round pick too, and they didn't retain anything. And you look at that Funnov contract, and this is one of the things I put in the piece: is that there's five years left at seven million dollars a year cap hit. You know, his last year with the Leafs last season, he he really looked on the decline more than he ever had before. And you look at the results he's produced in Ottawa, and he he looks like he's already a, he might already be a third pair guy. So getting out and away from that contract was just completely massive. I mean, the fact they were able to do that, I think I would have done that and not gotten anything back, and that would have been a good trade. Like if they didn't get Lindbergh and they didn't get a second-round pick. And I mean, it's, it's pretty crazy that they managed to do that. So I think that when we look back at this year, that's going to be so pivotal because of all the cap space that freed up, and it allows them, they're going to have so much free space, not only next year, but every year after that. Well, what would have happened if they couldn't
0: have traded him? Like that would have been a really big anchor on their books for a long time and there would have been nothing that you could do. Like they just got lucky that Ottawa thought that he could help them get somewhere. Like I don't it to me it never really made a lot of sense. I know Ottawa wanted to bring some experience onto their defense. They seem to like, you know, the leadership that he's brought, but like in a cap world, I guess for them it doesn't really matter. They're not gonna be a cap team, but yeah, that's just a, it's just a crazy moment. I don't even think you need to get anything back. And I think it's interesting if you look at like the way they handled that trade and the Kessel trade, because they handled them differently. Like they they seem like they had to get rid of Kessel, like they felt like they had to get it done before they kind of started this new era under Babcock. Whereas Finoff, it was almost like they were just more comfortable. Like they were okay if they had to bring him back. He was a good presence. When you contrast the way that they handled those two trades, does anything kind of strike you about it?
1: I wonder if they learned something maybe from the way the Kessel trade happened. I also wonder with what happened with the Kessel trade, if they weren't hundred percent happy with that. And that's part of why Lamorello came in. I mean, that's, that's been speculated a lot that we're not really sure who pulled the trigger on the the Kessel deal, but it seems like it was Kyle Dubas and Mark Hunter doing some of the negotiating there. And there was only one team that they could come up with that had any interest in Kessel. And then Pittsburgh kind of had them in a tough spot I know Capitan's had a good year, so that's one positive. I mean, Harrington's not even in the organization anymore. The thing I didn't like about the Kessel deal is that he was still—he was a better player than Funuff was. I mean, he st- he hadn't really declined, and we saw that last year for Pittsburgh. He was still a really effective player. So it was almost like if I think if you would have brought Kessel back with the Leafs, he would have had a really good start. And then you know maybe no, you don't. Yes. You, you want to get rid of him? Well, see, I don't. I I, I think.
0: I don't buy this idea that you could bring him back and just assume that it was going to get better. The way it ended that year and the year before was really bad. Like he did not look. I don't know. He, he he's he's a really polarizing player in the league. Uh, so I'm not sure you can just bring him back and assume that it's going to be better. What if it's worse? Like what if he clashes with Babcock? What if it doesn't work? What if he, like and then his value goes even lower? And that's the thing I don't think people take note of his value is like nothing like the team was a joke at that point he was seen as kind of the face of that joke in some ways as the guy who was kind of I don't know the, the face of a team that, that was out of control you know that that had all these incidents off the ice Luke gate and all this crazy stuff and if there's one team that's interested I'm just not sure what you're supposed to do you can hold them but then his value could get less and then you get I don't know, then maybe you have to take on more back. You know what I mean? Like, I just don't know that there was a good way to handle that situation given how corrosive it seemed. That being said, maybe they were over, I don't know, maybe they were overestimating the need to get him out of there. But I think they probably felt like if we're going to start this new slate, we need it to be sort of clean from the player who was at the center of a lot of weird stuff. Does that make sense?
1: I guess if you combine them, if you combine all of it, all of all of the guys they got rid of, and all the salary they dumped, and everything, and they were only, and you would have told me that they only retained 1.2 million out of all of that stuff, and they were able to move all those guys, and here's all the stuff that they got back in all of those trades. I would say that's a job well done. It's just the Kessel one was first, so when that happened, it's like, well, they didn't. Where I'm not even sure they got an NHL player. I mean, Kapanen, he might be. He, he's probably. Probably a third line guy, but I, I I just still had the firm belief that Kessel was going to be a very productive player for the Penguins, and it turned out that he was.
0: Well, you and I always agreed that he's a good player. Like there was this, there became this idea in Toronto that he was the reason that they were bad, which was a joke because he was a really productive player. There was just a lot of other stuff with him that I think that they didn't like. Like it was clear, painfully clear, that he was not a. Brendan Shanahan type player, and it made all the sense in the world for them at the point that they were to trade him because they're turning over. You know, they didn't need a guy who was going to be declining. Uh, Is there any other moment that you want to discuss in more detail? The contracts you mentioned for Riley and Kadri, I think, were really interesting. Uh, Six-year deals. Go ahead.
1: The other one was the Frederick Anderson trade. I remember now. I think I think that that's all ten, but that makes a lot of sense. And I mean. He's played 28 games. He started 28 games, and I think so far it looks it looks great. You know, it looks like they knew what they were doing with Anderson. I mean, if he can be as good, I think he's nine twenty three save percentage through 28 games. 28 games is it's not enough, but if this is what he is, they they made the right decision, and we'll see. I think we need to see how this full year p- plays out with him. If he can shoulder the load of playing, it looks like he's going to play a lot of games. I mean, if Bebo is the backup. Anderson's going to play a lot so we'll see if he can handle 62 or 63 games
0: well I think you and I both agreed that that was maybe the biggest question mark of their year whether he could be good because they were taking this big bet on him he's at like almost 940 I think since the start of November he's been really really good like if if that's what they end up getting like a top 10-ish top 12 goaltender that contract ends up looking good and their bet pays off it was just a bet you know. Sometimes. I don't know, you make a bet on a goaltender, it's not going to pay off. And that, and even one good year doesn't necessarily mean it works, right? Like, goaltending fluctuates.
1: So I was doing this 10, 10 moments thing, and I went back and I read the piece that I did after the Anderson trade, and there's a lot of stuff in there. I, I, I was kind of on the fence about it, but I point out in there, I had heard a lot of rumors leading up to that. They were doing all kinds of analytics, deep dive research on goalies, and they were trying to find a goalie, that would fit with Babcock's system and the kind of chances that Babcock's teams give up, and that they were doing all. So I don't know. I mean, maybe that's part of it. Maybe they just really needed a goalie that fit into with what Babcock does and the 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 swarm system they play. And maybe there's something to that. I, I don't know. But I had heard that they were consulting with all these different eggheads about, you know, what can we find in a goalie, and that's what they came up with. And they aggressively went after Anderson. I mean, you look at what they gave up. And I know that Calgary was interested too, and Calgary was very worried about the Leafs because they had heard how aggressive they were. And also, they're in the other conference. Calgary's in the same division as Anaheim, so the Leafs had an advantage there.
0: What's interesting when you mention the Babcock stuff is um, the guys at the Goalie Guild, I'm sure you check that out once in a while, they had a really interesting piece about some of the changes that Anderson made after that rough start. And one of the things that they inferred was that You know, Babcock likes his goalies to be more aggressive. And what ended up happening with Anderson is he was too aggressive early. And around late October, he started to change that and start to play a little bit differently and try to anticipate the play better and not be as aggressive stepping out of his crease. Anyway, there's a really good piece about that. Uh, And I talked to Anderson kind of about his season, and he actually pointed me to that site and to the article as kind of some of the changes that he's made. Um, so that's really interesting if that ends up being the case, but that is obviously a big moment. If they can get their number one goaltender, that is significant. I mean, like when you look back on the year, it's pretty interesting. I don't know, in the context of how this build is going to happen, they get their franchise center, they get their number one goaltender. Those are huge. Like, I don't know, people seem to agree that to have a cup team, you need a number one goal, you need a number one center, you need a number one D. So obviously that leads us to kind of the next thing I want to talk to you about. Where do you get a number one D? James Van Riemsdijk, you wrote a piece about potentially trading him at some point. I don't think he nets you a number one D. I think that's pretty fair to say, but maybe he nets you a top four defenseman. When do you think is the right time to trade him if you think it is, which I believe your piece said it was?
1: I think it is just because his next contract is going to be huge. They have to either decide that they're trying to keep him or move him I think in the next few months I don't, I don't think that there's you don't want to go into next year where it's kind of a lame duck season and you can only move him as a rental and it's gonna who knows what the market's gonna be and it'll depend how his half season goes and the lead up to that and <sighs> he's a good player but I think that he tops out probably as a second line left winger who's really good on in tight and on the power play I mean they're not using him on the top power play unit this year, right? I mean, he's he's kind of... They're using him on a sheltered second-slash-third line with Bozak, and I think that he has to be on a more of a sheltered line. So he's not a guy that... And I think the the thing, too, I was actually talking to someone with a team today about Van Riemsdyk. I guess they read the piece, and um, they were saying that they feel like he has incredible value because his contract is so low. And one team that people seem to think might make sense for the Leafs to deal with is Minnesota who have I think they have five they have like five defensemen so they can't protect them all in the expansion draft they're gonna to have to move someone they're having a great year but maybe they decide they want someone like Van Riemsak to come in for their run and they can get by without having five good defensemen and they can move one of those guys I mean that it could be a fit there but I have a question for you about this
0: one thing that I keep getting back to is the expansion draft and so any team that trades for him is going to have to protect him, right? Is there, Would there be any caution about protecting a guy who only has one year left and could just bolt? Like, do you think that, is that at all part of the equation that a, a team is going to have to take into account, especially one that might have a lot of good players that they want to protect?
1: Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Well, I mean, because even if Minnesota moves one defenseman, then they still... You have to protect Ben Right. But they might not be. If they want to protect four D, then they can only protect four forwards, and they're not going to be able to protect Van Riemsdyk. So it's it's an interesting question. I think if you, I think if you make that trade for Van Riemsdyk, you have to talk about contract terms, even though you can't get the deal signed. You have to say, do you want to stay here? What are you looking for? And you know, it's I I I think that whoever trades for him is going to do so thinking that they're going to keep him long term. Jonas is bringing up the Wild's depth chart. So Ryan Suter, Jared Spurgeon, Jonas Brodeen, Marco Scandella, Matt Dumba. Those are the five defensemen. So he's the
0: guy. That'll be interesting.
1: Yeah. I think I think the two that could the two that could be dealt are Scandella and Dumba. So I think that's who the Leafs would be debating on. Are they both right D? I know Dumba is. No, Scandella's is a left defense. I should know that because well, because Spurgeon's left is right. So anyway, well, but that so that gets to the kind of the crux of what you're
0: dealing with. Is Dumba like a top four defenseman? He might be. I don't know. Like he's so young. So I guess that's kind of the type of player you're potentially looking at—a guy who could be a top four defenseman, but you don't know. And I don't know. It's a, it's a really interesting question, and you hit on kind of the timeline. The longer you wait the less value he has, right? Um, The closer he gets to to UFA, the less value. Like, if you're a team that's contending for a playoff spot or wants to contend for a a cup, the sooner you get him, the better. But you're also going to be subtracting from your defense in this supposed idea, and that hurts you. So, like, maybe the summer ends up being a better time to trade for him. I, I don't know.
1: I was gonna say do you think there's a scenario where it makes sense to sign him and bring him back or do the Leafs need that money? Great question. I don't know. Like because
0: the one thing that I, I think we saw when Bozak was out, and I think this would happen the same way if Van Reemsdijk wasn't in their lineup, their lineup isn't wouldn't be as good. Like this is assuming like a lot of these uh prospects that they have with the Marlies are gonna be NHL players like soon and good NHL players like I don't know let, let's say you take Van Riemsdyk out who are you plugging that hole with you're in theory going to be worse so I don't know what let, let's continue to discuss I believe um do you have you have a radio hit so we're gonna have to break in a sec okay you have 10 minutes no yeah we, we got time um but so I don't know like if I don't think you should sign him like if it's me. Um, because of the age, because of the upper echelon, I think of what he is. Like I think at max, he's would it, would you agree thirty goals, sixty to sixty five points? Like I think at best, that's what he is. That's good, but I'm just not sure in terms of the age bracket whether it makes sense. Well,
1: he's 29 when the deal ends. I think his birthday's in April, so he's 28 this April and 29 when the con the the old contract ends. He's going to want at least six years at 29, and so he's going to be declining. The thing isn't the the question isn't are you is the lineup better with Van Reems like in it as opposed to someone like Leipzig or Kapanen or whoever else you want to pick from the market? You got to look at the cost as well, right? Like if you want to put some of that money onto the blue line, someone's got to go, I mean eventually. I know the Leafs cap situation looks fantastic next year because they're losing all of that dead cap, but it's not going to look fantastic forever. No. I like I wonder what Austin Matthews first contract's going to be. I mean, is he going to be a 10-11 million dollar guy right away? probably he's probably going to get an eight-year deal I mean we'll see how what is what his numbers are but I almost wonder I was going to ask you this I was thinking of I almost wonder if they should start I don't know burying is the right word I wonder if they should start giving Matthews as difficult a minutes as they possibly can so that he's not putting up 40 goals and 80 points and just you know
0: I think what what will be will kind of set the mark a little bit will be McDavid's contract when that eventually gets done and he won't be in the same stratosphere, but he'll be in the same ballpark as McDavid. It's it's interesting. Like I, I, I think I was tap dancing when I talked about the lineup a little bit because I saw your phone ringing. I w- it would obviously hurt their lineup in the short term, but I think long term the money that you could take on his contract, you could improve the lineup and then supplement it with the young players. Like I brought up, uh, I'm playing around on cap friendly while we talk. And I brought up Kyle Oposo's contract, and he's a—I think he was around the same age, maybe a little bit younger than Van Riemsdyk will be when he gets to UFA. And he got seven years, forty-two million, a cap hit of six. I think Van Riemsdyk's getting more than that, or in the same ballpark. And I don't know that that makes sense for a guy who, like you said, has to be sheltered. I don't know. Any any other thoughts on that subject?
1: I think people get confused and they think that we're saying he's not a good player. He's a great player. But he's a good. He's a good like complimentary guy. He's like he's good if he's like your third or fourth best forward. Not and and like if you're paying him six seven million dollars a year as he's declining, you want to get a really good player. You don't want to, or you want to be like a contending team that that needs to bring him back for the next two years so you stay a contending team. And that's not where the Leafs are right now.
0: Well, it happens a lot in basketball where you kind of judge players on can they be the best player on a championship team? Can they be the second best player on a championship team? I think he's got to be like the fifth or the sixth or the seventh best player. Is that fair? Maybe the fifth or sixth on like a a cup team. Uh, But it brings us back to the question of like how do you find that number one D? And I think that's going to be their real big challenge. Like, I don't know, even if you draft one, that's not happening right away and and it's not happening when they're I think going to expect to be a contender or a playoff contender so I don't know how they go about getting that guy and you and I talked about this earlier in the year like the prospect of maybe looking at trading Neander. I don't like subscribe to that idea but I think like you have to think about ways that you're going to be able to net someone who's good and to get someone good you're going to have to give up something good so how do you think they eventually go about solving that?
1: Yeah, I think the only reason why we started talking about Neilander for a defenseman is I was kind of picturing like a really high-end defenseman, like getting someone who's fantastic. And we saw with the Taylor Hall trade how hard it is, and I don't even think Larson's a fantastic defenseman. It's hard to get, especially a right defenseman. Like most teams don't have a right defenseman to spare. What what team, that we talked about Minnesota's got three right defensemen, um, uh, I was thinking um, uh, Winnipeg. Winnipeg's got three right defensemen. They could potentially move one. There aren't very many teams that have, and and do they have a player that's the, what the Leafs need, which is an elite defenseman? It's it's going to be really really hard to find. That that might be the hardest. Like you can you can find goalies because it seems like they're available all the time. Maybe if you have some weird proprietary metrics or whatever, you can pull out a, a goalie that other people aren't expecting or aren't that as high on. Um, they've they've drafted the number one center, which is hard to get. Defenseman's probably the hardest thing to get because it's even hard to draft a defenseman first overall because teams miss on them all the time. You know, I don't even know how good Ekblad is. I don't know Eric Johnson went first overall. I mean, he's not—it's hard. It's really hard to even just— like, you can't even just tank to get a great generational defenseman because we have a harder time projecting in terms of scouting with the D than we do with someone like Austin Matthews.
0: Well, look at some of the guys that we consider, like, number one D. I think P.K. Subban was a second-round pick. Duncan Keith, I think, was a second-round pick. Drew Doughty was two overall. But generally, like, it's it's kind of a crapshoot. Roman Yossi was, like, a late-round pick. I can't remember which round. It's hard. Like, Mark Giordano wasn't—I think he was a first-round pick, but I don't think he was high. Um, maybe what they have to do, and I think you brought this up at one point, is maybe you just have to try to find four good D instead of, like— Coming to this realization that you're maybe you're not going to have that Duncan Keith, but maybe that you can have four good defensemen instead of, I don't know, one or two great ones. Does that make sense? Something along those lines. So you're looking at, you know, Riley. You're looking at Gardner. What you, You're bringing up Girodano Go back. Oh, Girodano was undrafted. Okay, there you go. Exactly the point. Um, I don't know. So maybe you just have to have, try to have four good defensemen as opposed to Getting that great guy, like just try to build a solid foundation that way. What do you think?
1: It's not ideal. It's not, but yeah, I mean, that's going to be the real question for them. I wonder if you almost just build until you're a near contender and then you bring someone into the trade deadline or you, or at that point when you've got the Leafs are tied. I looked last night, they were tied for sixth in scoring in the NHL. I think that as Matthews and Marner and Nylander take the next step next year, they can be even better than that. It might They might get to the point where they've got so much offensive power that they can look at unloading some of it. But, I mean, I guess you lose JVR. I don't know what's going to happen with Tyler Bozak. Yeah, so if they lose JVR and Bozak, it's all of a sudden, okay, who's on that, that third line that was producing offense for you? Where's your offensive depth gone at that point? And they've been pretty good on the second power play unit too. So, you know, it's those are some of the questions that they're going to have to answer.
0: Okay, we have to take a break and then we're going to come back. And I think there's two things I want to get to. Hopefully we have time. I want to talk a little bit about Goche and whether you think he is an NHL player. And then uh, quickly, I want to talk about Marner and Nylander and whether you think that these guys are eventually going to be centers in the NHL. So we'll take a break, which we've never done before, and we'll come back and we'll discuss those things. James, we're back. Okay, you've done your radio hit. So what?
1: We forgot to mention something. Don't you remember last week you were late after we did uh, the podcast and and Brian Hayes and, and O Dog, they they were forcing us to mention them on the on the podcast for the first time ever. We have to give them a shout out because I made you late because the podcast started late and then we recorded late. The thing is you left your here house at two forty five. And you had an hour and 15 minutes to get to TSN, and that still wasn't enough. Part of it is, like, it's so
0: unpredictable. You live in the city. It's really hard to predict traffic. Like, I can leave. That's usually when I leave to do that show. And most of the time, I get there at, like, 320. And sometimes, like, the DVP is just insanely backed up, and I decided to take an alternate route, which backfired horribly it wasn't your fault I I said it was fine and I'm not gonna throw you under the bus but so they got their shout out that's it that's the last shout out they're getting so let's talk about um Frederick Gauthier uh he's come up the last little while you know when Bozak and Smith were out Bozak's back now but I think it's a really interesting long-term question for the Leafs it's not the biggest deal but it's a deal Uh, is whether he's an NHL player and whether he can be ultimately their fourth-line center, which is striking that that is kind of the ceiling for him, uh, a first-round pick. But anyway, that's a different topic. I've been going back and forth on this, so I'll give you my thoughts first off. I think he's looked okay, um, but ultimately when they're good, I don't see him being the guy. And what I kind of got my mind around thinking was, when you think of like cup teams and their fourth line centers and how they're used, I think of like Marcus Kruger in Chicago. I think of like Chris Kelly for Boston. Uh, there was one other guy I thought of. But ultimately, they have to be guys that can kill penalties against the best, that can start a bunch of shifts in the defensive zone, that can win face-offs, and that can skate and, and play with pace and play competitively. And I'm not sure he checks enough of those boxes. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, he's a bit unusual in that role because I'm trying to... The only one, the comparable I could think of in my piece was like Brian Boyle is what you would want Gauthier to be. Like Brian Boyle, not the prettiest skater, but he's 6'8", and he's a huge man. And he's a really good fourth line center. And Tampa gave him money because they wanted him to be able to fill that role. He does wins face-offs, kills penalties, does those... I mean, that's the high, high-end ceiling for where you would... He's going to be like a poor man's Brian Boyle in, I think, the best-case scenario. The only thing is, like, Gochi's reputation in the AHL isn't as, like, an ace face-off guy. Like, he's not dominating the AHL in terms of face-offs. He's not dominating the AHL in terms of penalty killing. Like, he's not a dominant player down there. And I thought it was... Really interesting because the criticism you hear about Gauthier around the AHL is about his competitiveness. And that's the first thing out of Babcock's mouth yesterday when he was asked about Goche. is that I don't have the quote in front of me. I, I, think, I think actually you do. The quote from Babcock
0: is, let me get it. It's in David Alter's story about the goat, quote unquote. Uh, where is it here? I can't find it. Basically, it's something along the lines of competitiveness. Maybe I'll just control search. Did he not include? Oh, here it is. Quote, to play every day in the NHL, he's going to have to be competitive. He's going to have to be harder. He knows that. We've talked about that. But he has a chance to be a very useful player at the NHL level.
1: That is the number one issue with Freddie the GOAT. People that know him say he's super laid back. He, as Alter gets into in the story, he didn't play hockey until he was at a high level, until he was a teenager already. Uh, Apparently, he's a guy that has a lot of different interests. You know, he's not—he's not Sidney Crosby. He's not the guy that like just lives and breathes and does just does hockey. So that—that's not to say that he can't do it or that I mean he's still a young guy he's obviously got talent I thought you were talking about his skating you didn't think it was good enough I thought it looked he looked pretty good I mean for a 6 I am sympathetic to a 65 guy skating because I'm an, I I'm 65 and I look awkward when I skate around the ice I mean it's, it's not so much what he looks like as long as he gets where he needs to go but I look at like if people in the AHL are saying well he's not the greatest face-off guy he's not the greatest penalty killer it's like okay so what is this guy I like, I mean he he might just be he might just be like a in between guy that only plays hundred games in the NHL and that's all he is. And the piece I wrote today was about all the fourth line centers the Leafs have had over the last ten years and how so many of them have been Clark Wilms and and David Steckel and Ricard Wallin and Wayne Primo and Jay McClement. It's all these guys that they try and put into a mold of you're a defensive center. But they just—they don't get the job done. Like their possession numbers are brutal. Their goals for goal differential on their on their ice is brutal. Some of that is that they've been made to play with enforcers in so many of those years in the last ten years with the Leafs. But some of that's on these guys too. They're just—and so many of those guys too were out of the league after playing for the Leafs. Like a bunch of them are playing in like Germany and stuff like that. I mean, that's—that's an indictment of the Leafs should try and. I, personally, I think they should try more skilled players on their fourth line than they do. You look around the league, Columbus is having such a great year. They've got Scott Hartnell and Sam Gagne with uh, a rookie whose name escapes me as the center, Sed- Sedlak, yeah, the, the Czech kid. Uh, I mean, they, that's been one of the best fourth lines in the league. They're at like 55%, 56% possession. I mean, why not try something like that? I think part of it is they want
0: a guy who's going to kill penalties and um – I think you kind of hit on why I don't think it, part in part it will work, is the competitiveness thing. You go back to you know Mike Babcock in Detroit. He wants like his favorite player when he left was Luke Lindening, like a guy who's really competitive, uh, and I'm just not sure he fits that mold. And, and like I think the pace thing. I know maybe he's gotten better. The NHL is just getting faster and faster and faster, and I just can't see him. And granted, like you're killing penalties, but I just can't see him being that guy for them when they're good. Um, but it, 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 I actually want to ask you something along these lines. Uh, I've been covering a couple world junior games and I've been watching Dylan Strom. And to me, he's like a really fascinating case of what he's going to be in the NHL. He obviously couldn't stick with the Coyotes this year. The one thing I keep coming back to is like the pace. And that was kind of the knock on him at the draft. What do you think would have happened if Arizona took someone else? Like maybe they took, I don't know, maybe they took the defenseman or maybe they took Marner. Do you think the Leafs would have picked Strom or do you think they would have picked like Hannafin or Wierenski or someone else?
1: I'm pretty sure, I don't want to say I know this for sure, I'm pretty sure they didn't like Strom. And they had Mark Hunter there who knew the OHL super well and – I think they had Strom further down their list, and and they, the debate. What I heard was it was Marner Hannafin. so they would have went Hannafin if if Marner would have went. But they were pretty sure that they were going to be able to get Marner at four. Otherwise, I wonder if there would have been a trade, or I, I don't know. But they were they were pretty. I think they were relieved when Marner was there. But but then, I mean, Hannafin's a good player. I mean, it would have, but I just don't know. It's like we were talking about already with projecting defensemen. I don't know if Hannafin's a one or a two or a three.
0: Well, the guy who kind of looks like he could be a one is Warensky, who went nine or something, eight to Columbus. In there too. Provorov, too, looks really good for Philly. Yeah, so it's, I don't know. It's, it's so fascinating. I still think, I don't know, like I— It'll be a question that kind of lingers long term, like what was the best move? Because Marner looks like a really good player and a really special player. Anyway, I just want to get your thoughts on that. That does bring me to what I want to get to before we wrap. We're just about done on time. Um, Marner and Neilander were both drafted, at least this is what they said publicly, to be centers one day. What percentage would you put that either of them will be?
1: That's a great question because especially if we're talking about Bozak getting moved, and if you want more center depth and center, so like I, I think that both those guys could play center if in a like a sheltered role. If you're giving them offensive zone starts and things like that, but can they be more than that? I mean you probably you probably want to give Marner more minutes than like a just a third line center with power play time, right? So. I don't know, it's really interesting. That piece that Jack Han had at the Athletic today about Marner and generating offense. He said that he wants to see Marner play more on the left side of the ice as a right-handed shot, which is interesting. I mean, if he's a center-iceman, he can probably do that more often. But the thing that Jack pointed out is that with the London Knights, Marner was often playing on the right-hand side even though he was, I guess he was mostly playing as a winger even in junior. It seems to me that that coming up through the system in Sweden and with the Marlies that Nylander has played more center than Marner. So maybe Nylander's a little bit more likely to be that kind of sheltered third-line center slash really good power play guy. Maybe that makes sense if if you don't have a Bozak anymore.
0: Yeah, maybe that's the, the solution. And just a guy that you just play in the offensive zone the whole time, you use Kadri and Matthews for the more difficult minutes. Yeah, that makes sense. It's just, I remember them saying that they thought he would be better having the puck more in the middle of the ice. And he's certainly like a really gifted passer. Um, I don't know. It's just an interesting long-term question when you try to project what they're going to look like. If you're Matthews one, Kadri two, Neal under three, not a bad start.
1: The other thing too is like I watch the way they play along the boards, especially in their own end. And I think Marner's got something there where he's able to come up with the puck a lot of the time. And I think that that's really helped the possession for that line with jvr and bozak which has traditionally been a weakness for those two guys marner's really even against bigger stronger guys he's able to come up with the puck whereas nylander doesn't he just doesn't have the same ability along the boards that you kind of need as a winger in the nhl
0: yeah it's a good point anyway we gotta go um so next week cool okay thanks for
1: listening Thanks for tuning in to The Leaf Report. Follow the guys on Twitter at Jonas Siegel and at Myrtle.